0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, you'll find it on page 857 of the Church Bible, uh, page 857, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 22 uh, down to the end of the chapter. Uh, You'll see that this uh, short sermon series, we're going to have six Sunday evenings that I've called Amazed by Jesus. And very simply, what I want to do is, I want to change the record that plays in our heads. I think if you're like me, there's a record that plays at the back of our heads all the time, one way or another. What what does God think of me? And sometimes the answer is positive, sometimes it's negative. That kind of always plays, doesn't it? I want to change the record to this question What does God think of Jesus? what does god think of his son in all his splendor in all his glory now that's what we need to ask and to see uh, to see much more than anything else so i hope that's i hope that's going to happen over these sunday evenings some of these sermons i have preached before in different uh, different ways some are new to me and new to all of us uh, but i hope this will be helpful as we look at this together so let's hear god's word luke chapter 2 reading from verse 22 talking about Mary and Joseph soon after the birth of Jesus. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And in favor with God and man. Amen. May God bless to us His holy word. What's the opposite of the word amazed? What would you say? I, I don't, the reason I ask is because I don't think the opposite of some words is what we think it is. So I don't think the opposite of love is hate, for instance. It's not true, is it, that the opposite of love is hate? No, sometimes, sometimes hatred is part of love, isn't it? We hate the things that harm our loved one, and we hate those things because we love them. We hate because we love, not in spite of love. Amazed. Well, what's the opposite? I don't think the opposite of amazed is bored or indifferent or apathetic. I don't think there's any one right answer to this. This is, I'm giving you my opinion. I think the opposite of amazed is cynical. Amazement is sheer wonder, isn't it? It is looking at someone or looking at something in wide-eyed astonishment, totally stunned at what you're seeing in front of you. I think the opposite of that is to look at somebody with Or something with cynicism. To to distrust them. To to doubt their sincerity or their integrity. To look at them and say, I'm not really sure I'm getting the full story here or the, the complete picture. I'm not sure I can trust you. I think cynicism is what happens in life again and again, isn't it? It happens to doctors. It happens to Uh, teachers to ministers to everybody in walks of life where you work with people the more you've been around the block the more you think in every situation nearly every person you meet you think yep i've seen this all before and you size people up nothing surprises me anymore we say and i wonder if cynicism is worse for us after the pandemic still in the pandemic So our our leaders in government, what have they told us? Hands, face, space. And then you see Matt Hancock. I don't think it matters what way you vote in elections. Take your pick of the political parties. None of them have showered themselves in glory, have they, these past 18 months. In any way, we're cynical. Christian leaders who we loved and trusted, who turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. We live in a world that always disappoints, don't we? And so like I said earlier, what I thought might help us is to take, in these days of cynicism, to take six Sunday evenings looking freshly at some of the ways, just some of the ways the Bible says that the Lord Jesus is amazing. To to look at someone in whom there is no guile, no cunning, no deceit, Well, aren't those words from Psalm 45 that we sang, look at the second verse, aren't they astonishing? Your throne will last forever with justice. You shall reign. You love all that is righteous. You hate all evil gain. God has richly blessed you with joy abundantly. Your robes are all fragrant. Your courts are ivory. Is there anybody in all the world like this? And what I want us to do is simply to come openly to Christ again, freshly, to to come near to somebody like this with the kind of completely open, fully trusting friendship that can transform how we view God, how we view the world, and how we view ourselves. I want us simply to be amazed by Jesus. And you see it there explicitly in the passage that we read, don't you? It's there in verse 47. Verse 47. Luke chapter 2, verse 47, all who heard him were amazed. But here's the health warning this evening. Not all amazement at Jesus is comfortable. Not all amazement at Jesus is comfortable. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. Verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, why have you treated us so? Not all amazement at Jesus is comfortable. It is right, it is good, it is necessary, and it is not all easy. Discovering who the Lord Jesus is brings us painfully close to God. That's what I want us to see this evening in Luke chapter 2, painfully close to God. In particular, in our families, Jesus brings us pain as he brings us close to God. We're going to look this evening at Jesus and his sword. See, so just look back at verse 34. Simeon, this old man in the temple. Imagine, imagine Joseph and Mary. It's like uh, the equivalent of baptism Sunday, isn't it? They're in the temple, this wonderful moment, purification rite, and this dear old saint takes. Baby Jesus in his arms, you see what he says about in verse 30? He sees that in Jesus here is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon saw that Jesus is a light. He saw the light, and Simeon saw that when that light shines, this baby is going to split the world in two. See that? Simeon blessed in verse 34 and said to Mary, behold. This child is appointed, look at it, for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. See what Simeon's saying? There is a train coming with this child. There is a storm brewing with this child. This child will cause some To rise and some to trip and stumble and fall. Here is what Luke is about to give us, a baby who splits the world in two. He is the son with a sword. Napoleon Bonaparte, a man who knew all about the sword in the hand, a ruler who swept nations before him at the height of his powers. Napoleon Bonaparte came to recognize in the Lord Jesus a superior power, Everything in Christ astonishes me, he said. His spirit overawes me. His will confines me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything about him is above me. Everything remains grand of a grandeur which overpowers. And so what we're going to do this evening, very simply, is, is we're going to look at at the Lord Jesus as a child, the boy in the temple. And maybe to our amazement, we're going to see that he is a heavily armed 12-year-old. A heavily armed 12-year-old. Now, armed children are disturbing to witness, aren't they? You see those images on TV now and again. Boy soldiers, 10 years old and with a Kalashnikov over the shoulder it's like your it's like your 3-year-old son you know those family get togethers all the adults are there big family event the barbecue's going and the, the kitchen implements are out and all the adults are talking and your 3-year-old son wanders into the living room while you're talking to friends and he's holding the kitchen carving knife in his hand and immediately every adult in the room jumps to their feet don't they to get the weapon out of his hand Look at Jesus here, only 12 years old and bearing a sword. So I've just got one point for us to see and then two applications. One point and two applications. Here's the point feel the pain. Feel the pain. This is an incredible story, isn't it? Verse 41, the boy Jesus in the temple. Can you imagine the frenzy of Joseph and Mary? Can you imagine them frantic with panic as they realize that their son is missing? And look what it says. Three whole days they're looking for him. Three whole days. Well, what would happen in our day and age if a child is missing for three whole days? It would be worldwide news, wouldn't it, by then? Friends of ours years ago lost one of their children on a shopping trip in another city, and the child was missing for long enough for the parents to be convinced that their child was gone forever. And even as the story was told to me a few days later by the father, I I could see him feel sick all over again as he told the story. And in these verses in front of us, look at the contrast between the anxiety of the parents and the serenity of the child. Seemingly not a care in the world. Isn't it astonishing? Why have you done this? The child says, did you not know? Why is this story here? Luke's gospel, Luke is the only gospel writer to include this story. What does he want us to see? Down through the centuries, this passage has proved particularly difficult for commentators. Here's Here's one 19th century commentator. He says this, There is a lesson here for all married people. It was Passover, and God has set ordinances for his people. And Mary and Joseph, though poor, went every year to Jerusalem for the Passover. So ought we as married couples to encourage one another in devotion to the Lord. There is a lesson here for all small children. When Jesus was lost, he did not idle his time away, as many small children are wont to do but rather made his way to his father's house. Now, I I think as you, you learn, the older you get, not to mock older commentators, but this is not an example about marriage or about parenting and keeping a tight rein on your children. It's not an example about children, what you should do when you get lost, make your way to the nearest church. No, this is about Jesus and families. It is about the pain that Jesus brings to a family. Do you notice how how Luke frames this story? Look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then look at verse 52. After this event, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. So in other words, before you read Jesus in the temple, before you read that story, you need to know that Jesus is filled with wisdom. He is a wise 12-year-old. And when the story ends, you need to know that he is filled with wisdom. He is going to be a wise teenager. And Luke is saying to us, I want you to start and finish with that because right, right in the middle is an example of Jesus being incredibly foolish. The grace of God was on him, verse 40. And right in the middle, he does something incredibly ungracious. Slips away from his parents. Doesn't tell them where he's going. And leaves them for three days sitting at the feet of the teachers in the temple. It seems, doesn't it, without a care in the world. Let me ask you to take a step back are those the actions of a wise and gracious child? Are those the actions of a child showing God's blessing on his life? Isn't that the twist in the story? The wise child acting like an irresponsible child, tormenting his parents. Unless, of course, what Jesus is doing here is the wisest thing that he could do. What if Jesus' time in the temple and his words to his parents as they grab him by the shoulders and they say to him, why have you treated us like this? What if his reply to them is saying to them, I have treated you wisely. I have treated you graciously, lovingly. Honor your father and mother, said the law. Friends, what is the point of sitting in the temple, amazing the teachers of the law with your wisdom, if you are a precocious rebel against your own parents? Unless Jesus was honoring his mother and father by doing this, by being here instead of there with them. How can this be wise? Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I want you, mother, father. Here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to know that as close as I am to you as your child, I have an even greater closeness to my father in heaven. My relationship to him surpasses my relationship to you wow and a 12 year old boy in the temple draws his sword unsheathes his sword This child, said Simeon, this child will cause many to rise and many to fall. Some will see who he is, some will not, and he will split the world in two. And Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. Do You know, friends, Luke wants us to see that the first time, the first time the sword pierces Mary's soul, the sword is in her own son's hand. Isn't that right? The first piercing comes from him, from Jesus himself. As Jesus says to his parents, my closeness to you, as close as it is, is surpassed by my closeness to my father in heaven. I am your son, yes, but small s, lowercase s. And I am his son, capital, uppercase S. And look, friends, it is the wisdom of the child to be saying to his parents here gently, before the pain of his death ever reaches his mother's heart, it is his wisdom to say to them, you need to know my life is going to bring you pain because I am first of all his before I am ever yours. Friends, discovering who Jesus is brings us to God, yes, but painfully. Jesus is showing here that when you have him in your family, all other family relationships come second. That's the meaning of this story. When you have Jesus in your family, all other family relationships come second. Have Jesus in your life And all other family ties lose their primary allegiance, and they fall in line behind him. Doesn't this mean, friends, that when Jesus splits the world in two, it will sometimes mean splitting families in two? God has made the world, hasn't he, so that families are the world's dominant culture. The first culture in the world is the family. The family is the primary social unit. It's why it is right for parents to be the ones who are in charge of everything for their kids, not the government. Parents first, then government. Education in general, sex education, whatever it is, you cannot have someone else telling parents what they should teach their children what they should believe to teach their children. No, families have an allegiance to each other like no other unit on earth. Blood is thicker than water. Until it isn't. Until it isn't. Blood is not thicker than water when Jesus is in the room. Listen to these words. The Lord Jesus himself speaking. Matthew chapter 10. Do not assume that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Friends, this evening I simply want to encourage us to count the cost of following Christ in our families, and in our churches. Let let me give you three commentators, three commentators on what we've just looked at in Luke chapter 2. Jesus came to cause the trouble of a serious decision for himself, a decision against the absoluteness of the family. The family and its happiness are not the last word. Jesus puts himself in competition with the best thing on earth. Wow, friends, are you amazed? Who does that? Jesus puts himself in competition with the best thing on earth, the family. Here's Leon Morris. Jesus claims for himself a higher place in his disciples' affection than that which they accord their nearest and dearest on earth. Are you amazed? Who does this? You, you, you don't disrupt the family, do you? You don't come between siblings, parents. Knox Chamberlain said, Here is a world where a father says to his son, I would not love you so much, my son, unless I loved Jesus more. Two applications for us. Number one, a challenge. Number two, an encouragement. Here's the first application. I want to challenge us, friends, this evening, a challenge and an encouragement. I want to challenge us in the painful work of Uncoupling our family's primary allegiance from being to itself. Okay, let me say that again. I want to challenge us in the painful work of taking our own natural families and uncoupling that family's primary allegiance from being to itself. To us, my family, my family first. It's it's worth saying that every family has a sword. Every family has a sword in it. It's how cultures work. In every culture someone calls the shot, somebody draws the line, somebody says that is wrong and this is right. There is a sword in every family. Every family is a culture, so every family bears a sword. It's simply a question of who bears the sword. Do the parents bear the sword? Does the child bear the sword? Or does Jesus bear the sword? Parents, you know this is true, children are born with a sword in their hand. It was there, wasn't it? Right from the moment they arrived into the world. We bring them home from hospital, and there is our little bundle of delight, heavily armed. Feed me, burp me, wash me, sleep me. And so the merry dance of parenting begins, doesn't it? Who is in charge here? Who calls the shots? Parenthood is all about finding the right way to take the sword gently out of the child's hands and to keep it in the loving parent's hands until it is time, many years later, to put the sword back in the child's hands and give them their own sword. And there are many families, aren't there, where the parents have actually never taken the sword out of the child's hands. The beautiful, sweet, innocent child runs the family, runs the show. And eventually you end up with fragile children because they've never had to go against their feelings and frayed parents because they've never had to go against the kids. One theologian says that in the most relaxed of homes where, where the parents just always say yes to the children and never discipline them, just watch how the children in the end become the strictest disciplinarians of all. In other words, they end up writing the rules for family life. Someone in every family will hold the sword. The sword should be in the parents' hands, shouldn't it? To, to teach our children that the road to life is cross-shaped. The road to life is the road to dying to self. And that the road of this family that we are walking together, this road says that our family is not absolute. That there are things we will do as a family that do not put this family first, but instead put others first. I want to encourage you in this, friends, that that a family that is not precious about itself And I say that to myself because I'm precious about me, me time, David time, introvert time. Now, a family that is not precious about itself and its own family time will become a fountain of life to others. A family that gives itself away for others will find more life within its four walls than if it is just that family. Let me show you where this comes from. Just look look forward to Luke chapter 8. You've got Luke's gospel open. Keep your finger in in chapter 2, but flick forward to Luke chapter 8. And verse 19. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Do you feel the sword entering Mary's heart? My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Look forward to Luke chapter 11 verse 27. Chapter 11 verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. No, says Jesus, those who hear God's word and do it They are my family. They are the ones that uh, that are blessed. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is thrusting his sword into the natural family, not to destroy the family, but to unhitch it from itself and to tie the family to others who believe, to others who believe in Jesus. You're saying to your kids, aren't you, all the time that these people here in church dotted around the room every single Sunday, they are your family. Your family. That, that's why we're here every Sunday morning and evening doing this together. We shouldn't expect our kids to ever grow up and just somehow magically start dying to themselves if they haven't seen our family first of all die to itself. It's why we talk really openly about the Trinity family, the Trinity Church family. Friends, that is not make-believe or pretend language. And, And be with us long enough, you'll discover we are a real family with all the foibles and mistakes and problems of any family. But it is actually real, isn't it? We are family. See what Jesus is saying? Yes, I have my natural family, he says, but... I am just as bound to those who hear God's word and seek to do it with me. Are you amazed? On the Lord's day, Christ's family comes before my family. That's how we do things. Christ's family come before my family. On the Lord's day, you come before my family. And I want to say to you, you don't come before my family every day of the week. But on the Lord's Day you do. Saturday is family day. Sunday is church family day. Mother's Day doesn't trump the Lord's Day. Birthdays don't trump the Lord's Day. Nothing is meant to trump us being family together. Jesus enters our world with a sword and says, where is your primary allegiance now? You know, parents, men, in particular husbands, uh, we tend to love sword fighting films, don't we? A bit of a stereotype. We love sword fighting films, but the sword of headship, not so much. See, my role as a husband, as head, means Responsibility. Headship does not mean giving orders to the family. It means that I'm responsible for everything that happens in this home. It happens on my watch. Headship does not mean being the decision maker or even even as if, if there's a clash over decision making, the ultimate decision maker, as if the husband gets the casting vote. No, in our family, my wife makes the better decisions nearly all the time. But I'm responsible for the decisions that are made. I'm responsible for Jesus being first in our home, not anything else being first. This sword that Jesus brings, he brings it into every single room in the house, doesn't he? What about our money? Is there radical, deep, costly generosity at the heart of what the family does with our finances? Or would a close look at the checkbook show that money is king, not Jesus is king? What about our time, work and home, work and home, back and forwards, back and forwards, or work and rest and others and others and others? That's the first thing, friends, a challenge to uncouple your family's natural allegiance from itself to being to Jesus. Here's the second one, an encouragement. I want to encourage you, friends, this evening, in the painful work of belonging to Jesus in your natural family. I want to encourage you in the painful work of belonging to Jesus in your natural family. I'd like you to pray for my husband. Somebody shares in the prayer meeting. He's not a Christian. And straight away you realize, don't you, that closeness to Jesus has brought pain into the home. M- my wife, I-, I would love my wife to be a Christian. I've spoken, to her about, I've spoken to her about the Lord Jesus many times. I've explained the gospel, but she just can't believe that what he says about himself is true. She, she won't have it. And right there and then, you are meeting the sun and the sword. My children, my precious children who don't believe, they've walked away, and my heart is aching. My parents who don't believe, and the sword splits. And many of us, many of you here this evening, we're we're in that place, aren't we? We're just wrestling with it. Is this what Jesus does? I've told you before, and I know many times about Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you have read her, read her works. Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian professor of English literature and women's studies at a university in the United States. She was a seasoned writer, an advocate of queer theory, politically left. Her life was happy, meaningful, and full. I despised Christians, she says, and then somehow I became one. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed his name commanded my pity and my wrath. My friends, what happens to a woman like that when she discovers who Jesus is, when she she comes to sing those words that we sang in Psalm 45, as she comes face to face with him. Is it a world of sweetness and delight? She sees who Jesus is, confesses her rebellion, and all is well. Here's what she says. Through a long and lovely chain of events, I began to read the Bible. I devoured it the way a glutton devours, and I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. It's just what Simeon said would happen, isn't it? A train is coming. A storm is brewing, a a split is coming into the world, and Christ in his wisdom calls people to himself in a way that divides families and separates primary allegiances from being to each other. Is it going to be him and him or somebody else? It is immensely painful. Some of you young people here this evening, some of you have already had to do this. Some of you are going to do this in the coming years. You're going to wrestle with putting the Lord Jesus before a certain other relationship. It's going to happen. It's going to come. And there will be tears when it comes. I want to say to you that today's pain in choosing Christ will be tomorrow's fruit. Today, death. But tomorrow, life. Young people, do not choose the path of least resistance. Jesus will never, ever disappoint you, never fail you. He is never not worth it. You know, I think the need here, as I finish, the need is to copy Mary, isn't it? Look at Mary in verse 51. Luke chapter 2 verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You know, friends, the Lord Jesus is worthy of treasuring in all his staggering claims and the pain that he brings. I think that is such a beautiful verse. It is not saying Mary said, oh, yeah, I get it now. Okay, no problems. Everything's fine. No, verse 50, they they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. There is wrestling here. There is bewilderment, isn't there? A lot of just simple, plain astonishment at who Jesus is. He he is worthy of our highest affections. Isn't he compelling here? Look, look what he's doing to the teachers of the law. He He's amazing them because, well, we sang it together, Psalm 119, I have more wisdom than all my teachers. He he has absorbed God's perfect law into his very being. He he lives and breathes the beauty and perfection of the law. He is walking in covenant faithfulness so that he is the supremely perfect, righteous man of the Psalms. He is now going to grow into a man and move through the pages of the gospel like a one-man walking paradise. Oh, he's worth it. You know, when I first preached this sermon, I can't remember when it was, years ago, somebody in the Trinity family came up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes, and they said to me, Christ's sword is in my home. That is exactly what has happened. But he is worth it. He's worth it. Can I finish with Samuel Rutherford again? I gave you him this morning. It's so good. You have it twice in one day. Put the beauty of ten thousand thousand worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden, put them all in one. Put all trees, flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness into one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ, than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. It would be less, for there is none like him. Amen.